you won't be replaced by AI, but you'll be replaced by someone using AI. So we're really wanting to help people understand the tools and how they can be better performing so that we, you know, we really value our associates. Welcome to Altitude, the unsung heroes of cloud transformation, a podcast by Aviatrix. Today, more and more enterprises are moving their business up to the clouds as the race to innovate continues. In this multi-cloud world, IT leaders and teams find themselves behind the wheel where they are confronted with both new challenges and new opportunities. On Altitude, we explore the voices and stories of the people who are overcoming these challenges every day to drive their business to the next level. Be sure to subscribe on your preferred listening app and stay tuned for this episode. Hello and welcome everyone to another fabulous episode of Altitude. As always, I am your host, Woody Woodworth. So excited about today's show. Our guest, Sean Seaton, is a real super cool, super smart, uh, super prestigious guy. He is the Senior Director of Enterprise Architecture and a distinguished AWS engineer and expert. And he works for Choice Hotels. And if you're interested about that, they are the parent company for such iconic and well-known brands as Radisson, Comfort, Choice, Clarion, Sleep, Cambria. They are just a wildly successful and effective company. So, Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you, William. Glad to be here. I think today most of our topic is going to circulate around being an early adopter, which is a really exciting topic for an episode because on Altitude, we haven't really drilled into what it means to be an early adopter for cloud full on. We've touched on little facets of it. And this is a great opportunity to do so because Choice Hotels is one of the preeminent early adopters of cloud, right? Absolutely. We were. We, we've always had a culture of innovation. So yes, we were very early. What kind of catalyst was there at Choice Hotel to be an early adopter? Because that's probably not at an executive level or even a management level, you know, not an easy decision to make, right? There's risk involved. There's unknown uh, factors involved. There could be all kinds of uh, bumps in the road. So what kind of drove Choice Hotels to say, hey, we're going to jump in feet first? Choice Hotels has always been there uh, supporting the American dream for the individual families, business owners that want to really live that American dream. And so when we started at the beginning with just a few properties that wanted to come together and make sure their quality standards were up across the board with quality hotels, we, from that point on, we've always looked to see how do we make it more efficient? How do we save the money for our franchisees? Because we're, we're a franchisor for most of our properties. So how do we make that experience better for our franchisees? So because of that question of always asking the question, how do we make it better? How do we make it more efficient? We really we're a strong culture of innovation. So it, it's really within our culture to look for and constantly improve. So because of that, the cloud came along. I mean, I would say probably what was known as the cloud in the early 2000s was things like VMware on-site in a data center. But if you look at Choice Hotels from what our, we're a hospitality company, we're a hotel, hotel company. So we have property management systems. And the property management system up to the, you know, most of 2000s was actually on site for most properties. Right. We were the first company that sort of said, well, is there a better way? Is there a more efficient way? And so we moved the property management system into the cloud. 
So for you then, as, as a whole, speaking about, you know, your organization as, as a whole culture, innovation really led the way, uh, as well as efficiency and looking for just better ways to do things and better ways to deliver services to your franchises and your end customers, right? So it was all about transformation, essentially. And that, uh, to the proponents of cloud, was worth the risk. Absolutely. It was always, what are the transformation transformational technologies. Even today, we have an innovation team that's looking at things like generative AI. So what does it mean to us? What does it mean to our franchisees? What does it mean to our associates that are information workers or developers? We have 400 plus developers. How do we make their lives easier with some of these newer technologies? It is about transformation, but it always has to be aligned with both our corporate strategy. So is it meeting our goals to grow as a company? Is it meeting our goals to grow from an EBITDA standpoint? Is it meeting our goals to help the franchisees? And because we're people focused, does it help with retention and with making life better uh, for day-to-day -day associates within choice? It's cool that you mentioned Gen AI. We have touched upon that subject because it is such an exciting, you know, hot topic right now in the industry. Everyone's thinking about it or uh, using it or experimenting with it or whatever, what have you. Um, so I want to get to Jenai a little later in the context of innovation and being an early adopter, because obviously Choice Hotels has the right culture in place and expertise and staff in place to probably be one of the breakout users of Gen AI in a big enterprise context. Uh, and we'll get to what I mean about that later. Okay. Um, but I want to back up a little bit and kind of just get through some of the more standard blocking and tackling that I think people want to know about what it's like to work for a company that is so early in on cloud because a lot of our listeners are probably a little further behind in their cloud journey, right? They may not have considered moving their business critical apps to cloud yet. They may only have one foot in the door of cloud. They may just currently be building their first serious cloud application, right? There's all these different phases of cloud evolution. And so it's a great opportunity for our listeners to learn a little bit about the wisdom uh, that you and your team picked up along the way. But what is it like personally just to work for a big company with this innovative culture that is an early adopter? I mean, I'm sure there's pros and cons, but I want a little bit of just the kind of the emotional picture. Is it like getting up every morning at 6 a.m. doing 20 push-ups and then getting in there and ready to rock and roll? Is, so is it like this kind of hard charging culture? Is it like a culture that is accepting of mistakes and understands that there will be multiple paths to success? What's it like uh, as just a human being to be in this kind of melting pot? Absolutely. So I like to joke that this is my first real job in my <laughs> career, which has been, you know, spanned more than 30 years. I, I've started five different companies. And when I started working with Choice, you mentioned getting up in the morning. I worked with Choice for a year and a half as a consultant before I even decided to join. And what I noticed is I had more energy because of the way people were looking at problems, always looking at it from a standpoint, is there a better way of doing this? What is the problem we should really be solving? And so that really excited me such that I wanted to join Choice Hotels and I've been there for three years. I mean, there's always, there's always problems, but the, I believe, I mean, the two things that really excite me about my career are the people that I work with and the technologies I get, get to touch. But I've really been grounded in the fact that technology is for people. It's not just for technology's sake. So when Choices Innovation says, well, how do we put our people first? 
how do we say, I'm going to bring it back to generative AI because people are worried about losing their jobs, et cetera. We right. say, well, you won't be replaced by AI, but you'll be replaced by someone using AI. So we're really wanting to help people understand the tools and how they can be better performing so that we, you know, we really value our associates. Uh, so I love every morning getting up and well, what are the problems today? I mean, there's some homework. Sometimes you work late sometimes, but when you have the support of the other people on your team, that's always, that's always great. And so being that early adopter means that you are willing to take some risks to say, well, if this fails, it's okay. It doesn't yep. really, you know, we're going to fail fast. We're going to try out a bunch of things and then we're going to learn from those mistakes and always ask the question, how could it be done differently at the end? That's exactly right. That's, that's what I was driving towards, which is this idea that there's a few key pieces that have to be there in the puzzle for companies that are big enterprise companies like Choice Hotels to be successful as early innovators, right? Big ship, little rudder. Um, so these companies like Choice Hotels existed prior to cloud and probably have legacy tech debt and legacy applications. Like you were saying, uh, some of your critical apps were data center focused. And of course, you had to migrate them. So when you take a big company like this, I'm just speaking from my personal experience working with different customers as I helped enterprise migrate to, to Azure. I found the companies that were Fortune 500 uh, size companies that were the most successful had that, had the tolerance for a little tolerance for ambiguity and tolerance for experimentation and a manager culture and a top-down culture that allowed mistakes. I saw other enterprises that yes. were much more, for lack of a better term, kind of died in the wool or conservative towards risk. And they struggled in cloud because you have to take that first step into the unknown in order to be successful. And they did, they did not know kind of from a cultural perspective how to proceed. And it came through on my consultations and phone calls, you know, like you have to re-envision your application. You can't just lift and shift it to be successful. If you do, you'll yeah, pay off the exactly. news. You have to think about refactoring it and moving these parts of the applications to different platforms to really capture the best of what cloud has to offer. And they just couldn't wrap their head around it. But it sounds like a choice that that is not the case, right? So you guys have refactored some critical apps, right? Containers? We have refactored some critical apps. So our, our major application being a hotel hospitality company is our central reservation system. So we refactor that to be completely cloud ready, completely uh, part of it's in containers, part of it's in AWS EC2 instances uh, using spot instances, but it was completely moved from the data center and refactored at the same time. And we were the first company to do that. We took our 30 year old code and we just said, we completely rewrote it. We call it Choice Edge. Wow. So for others listening in that have tried that exercise and failed or maybe are stuck, what are some words of wisdom you could give them to help them? reach the level of success you did with that initiative? What are some of the secrets to being able to recode this 30-year-old application and refactor it and, and then scale it? Sometimes our own processes, our own bureaucracy gets in the way of innovation. So one of the things that we found that really helped for Choice Edge was to take a small team of people across the organization. So everyone from product to um, business analysts, to a whole whack of developers, architects, you know, project managers. And we put them in a, in a different location and we put them outside of our process 
So instead of innovating the process at the same time as innovating our, our central reservation system, they were able to focus on the central reservation system. And within a year and a half, two years, they had the bulk of everything redone. So it's really being willing to look at yourself saying, all of our systems are not perfect. So how do we allow teams to work outside of those systems while we improve those systems as well? So is it a little bit of not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good? <laughs> yeah. Is that a way to frame it or is that to is that an oversimplification of, of that? No, I, I think so. And so you don't have to have all the things. What your point is, yes, I agree that you don't have to have all of your things, all your ducks in a row. You don't have to be completely yeah. perfect before you start. I mean, I really learned that being an entrepreneur, you just start. Obviously, you, you check with customers to see what they really need and you try to meet those needs, right? Where are the pain points? Where are the opportunities? But you start, you, you go down a path and don't worry about perfect, which is really difficult, as you know, being an engineer yes. to not go for perfect. Because yes. we, there's always something to tweak. There's always something to change. And so you have to let go of that as a company right. and as the people that are working on the innovative projects. Wow. So restraint uh, is another key cultural component of success to be yes. an innovative early adopter, right? To just to be okay and let it go. Yes. That's exactly. hard for me, dude. I am so CDO, by the yep. way, I'm in the right order. Yep. Often let the perfect be the enemy of the good, which causes me to miss deadlines and procrastinate. It's a long-term issue I've had. But then, of course, at the end, at four in the morning, when I finally put out this piece of work, it should be amazing. Or at least I feel that it's amazing. But, you know, it's two weeks overdue and my boss is like, where the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I uh, would, it would work out in choice hotels as an engineer. I'd probably get in everyone's way. Uh, no, you know what? There are times there's, I mean, you get it, we have to be creative creative, right? And sometimes yeah. you just need to go out there and try something and not have a deadline. But I find with most engineers, you, you have to put that deadline. Otherwise, you'll never be done, right? It's never good enough. And it, it's, I mean, you're really creating art as a developer. Yeah. So yeah. it's hard for someone to see that art. It's like when someone does a painting, right? I would compare that to. So it's like, I'm putting my soul out in this code, which sounds weird, but it is an artistic thing. And so you have to be willing to be vulnerable for that. Absolutely. Every podcast I do, almost like 95% of them, we end up talking about creativity and art. And a lot of my guests are artists or have dabbled in art or have a deep fascination with some form of art. It could be painting or music or dance or drama or whatever. And I love that connection because I think a lot of people do miss the fact, people that are not intimately involved in the process, that yes. developing and engineering is is a labor of love that's full of improvisation and creativity and is fundamentally an artistic process and you have to be vulnerable. Absolutely. Because you have that. to kind of put yourself out there, right? Yep. And yep. and let go. And we've been talking about that. So man. All right. So we've talked a lot about maybe expected outcomes, like the success of you refactoring and some of the important steps you took as an organization to really embrace change and you know, turn the corner and make a big transition. What are some of the unexpected outcomes that happened in this journey? Things that you either planned for and they didn't turn out the way you thought or things that just rose up that you did not account for? I would say, I'm going to state the obvious, but initially we were looking for the ability to be more reliable and 
and scalable, which those expected outcomes absolutely were realized by moving to the cloud. So we have a lot less downtime. But some of the unexpected things, so in our data center setup, we had two main data centers across the country. And we had essentially four zones for the firewalls in our networking. It was very unexpected to move from a, a very easy centralized set of firewalls with four zones into this ability to put a firewall on every single compute resource, every single EC2 instance, every single container, every single Lambda. We did that and every single thing we moved or refactored or added new would have to go through this very lengthy infosec risk management process to come up with a set of firewall rules, security group rules that were on there. So over time, we never thought that would grow to more than 32,000 rules from something that is decentralized now, having a whole, like every single compute essentially acts as a firewall. And we never planned for having centralized control over all of those distributed things. So over the last, you know, eight years or so, we have this very unwieldy uh, setup of just security pieces. I think that's probably the most unexpected. Yeah, boy, so interesting you point that out. A lot of other Fortune 500 companies, again, and just in, in my experience, I just speak through, you know, my lens, the vast majority of the big successful companies I worked with found that security sprawl in the cloud was one of their biggest pain points because of exactly what Makes you sense. said, because it grows so quickly and they find themselves in charge of things that they didn't plan for and anticipate and the sheer scale of it and trying to use a standard DMZ architecture, which works great in the data center in cloud is problematic uh, for them. Yeah. I would say trying to reuse all the tools that we already knew in the data center and just moving them to the cloud, probably not a good idea. Right? Not a good idea. Yeah. yeah. But I would say one positive outcome that I found that I, we didn't expect is that you're actually able to pick the cloud tool for the task. And I'll give you an example from a database standpoint. So let's say you buy Oracle Rack in the data center. And so everyone uses Oracle Rack. Why? Because we have Oracle Rack and we want to use the licenses we want to connect, right? Yeah. Well, when you develop an application in the cloud, if your data requires a graph database or a time series database or a NoSQL database or a SQL database, you're actually able to pick your tool for the task and build that application independently. And we, I mean, it makes sense now, but it was just something we didn't think about at the time. So where we were really strict about we only support one database, we really got this benefit out of picking, as I said, the tool for the task. I see. Right. Because really it's all a PaaS service or ideally these database yes. capabilities have been managed, pacified, what yes. have you. Thus, you can pick the right database in a very agile, instant, quasi-instant way that suits the workload, that suits the way the application needs to handle data and not be frozen into this monolithic database structure that like an on-prem company will have invested millions, say in Oracle or uh, SAP or whatever, and then it's kind of that or nothing because they can't reinvest in another whole physical database stack, not at the scale possibly that's needed, but of course, cloud shatters all that, right? Because yeah. it's turnkey. Hey, I want this database for this particular outcome. I guess as long as you have uh, the application team that understands the, the intricacies of the database, 
is fine. You don't have to worry about the management of it anymore, right? The, the cloud right. service provider's got all that, but as long as they're very comfortable uh, coding against the way that database works, you're, you're in good shape. I mean, one example, we, we picked a NoSQL database for all of our transactional things, which was a really poor, poor decision. So we, you know, we redid that and, and changed it to a transactional AWS Aurora database. Yeah, that's another thing maybe that we can take as a lesson learned here that because things in the cloud are managed and service-like and virtualized and effectively take hours at most to spin up, maybe a day if it's a big complex service, that would be one of the longer, bigger ones. The appetite for risk is different. Because like you said, you choose the wrong database. It's not like you have to unrack a thousand servers, put it back in the boxes and ship them back. Nope. Yep. Doug Meir, our CEO here, talks about one-way doors and two-way doors as big decisions for big corporate actions, right? So I think the cloud turns a lot of one-way doors into two-way doors that are easier. Decisions that normally would have cost millions to reverse, maybe in the cloud just cost thousands to reverse. So uh, maybe that mindset is important as well. What do you think? Oh, yeah. You're talking about like time. So it just remind me of, of doing an analysis of standing up a database server previously. On average, it would take about 114 days to stand up a new database server with all of the procurement and the, the hardware, purchasing the hardware, getting the licenses, getting, getting it racked and stacked, getting the software put on it. If, is it a VM is it something like vBlock where we have to, you know, set it all up with the VMs? Is it VMware? Like all the things that used to happen. And as you said, you could do that within 10, 20 minutes or at most if it's a huge thing, a number of hours. But 114 days to minutes and hours is incredible. And Incredible. Yeah. yeah. And it's a two-way door, as you said. Yeah. Of course, I have to ask for our listeners' sake and my own, would you do anything differently with hindsight being 2020 in terms of being an early adopter. Absolutely. I have a, a list that keeps me up at night of the things I wish we did, but let's, let's talk about them so we can help, you know, other cloud adopters to, to look at some of these things. So I would say when you move into a new technology, you don't necessarily know all the things. And so we're really comfortable, most people with using a user interface and really, you know, touching and feeling getting an idea, deploying, you know, a new database using a, a UI, using a console as such. And so people got really comfortable with AWS by using the console, which is fine. I think it's great, but I would say don't use the console to deploy production. Make it a requirement that no one can ever use the console to deploy the production. Interesting. Why? Because... When you move to, hey, I have to do disaster recovery or I have to recreate what I just did in another environment because I want I did dev and now I got to do QA or pre-prod or prod. If you have it as infrastructure as code, instead, it is much easier to parameterize, change it, redeploy. You want to move to Ohio instead of Oregon, you just have to change the parameters and redeploy. Instead of somebody like, don't go move from an admin mentality where you have Linux administrators, database administrators to a cloud mentality where people are learning how to code in Python or TypeScript, for instance, and actually creating infrastructure as code. Use CloudFormation, use Terraform, use mm -hmm. Cloud Development Toolkit if you're comfortable with, with developing, but don't use the console 
uh, use it for learning. So use it in dev, maybe use it in R&D, uh, get all the settings that you want and put it in code. That is awesome. Super good wisdom. I have some other ones. So I would say have a robust tagging strategy at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You, you have limits on the number of tags you can have. We only define maybe 10 tags to begin with. And people were annoyed that they have to come up with metadata and figure out who owns it and what version it is and uh, what was it built with and you know what's the ID and our information system for enterprise architecture. But now we, we've gone out with like, say, 40 tags. There are many benefits of being able to put all the things together. Disaster recovery is one of them. Uh, diagramming is another. So the ability to find all the things that belong to an application. If you want the as-is diagram of something, don't rely on people remembering, rely on the systems and being able to go and query it if you need it and build a diagram using tags. That is handy. All right, seems like you got, I mean, keep going. This is great. This is like gold. Embrace the cloud build tools versus bringing in your own tools and and standing up a bunch of virtual machines. So don't bring in Jenkins because you use Jenkins for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Figure out, is there a better way of doing DevOps? And don't be scared that DevOps is not real development because it is, and it benefits everyone. I find that in our organization, quite often people stay away from the DevOps piece because it's not real development. And for whatever reason, we end up with a whole jumble of different tools. And then other groups within Choice actually have embraced some of these tools and it's really easy for them to go from repository to production. Use the cloud tools for building. Allow developers to use reference architectures. So decide on, we, we already mentioned like there's many different ways of doing the databases, but at least give people an idea. If you're gonna develop an application, you wanna have an API gateway, you wanna have EC2 in the back end, or EKS Kubernetes with containers or ECS with containers, have the pictures and then take those pictures and put it as infrastructure as code and then make it easy for someone to just take their code and deploy it. So have those reference architectures. And the last one, since we're talking about, do not bring your networking components like F5 big IPs or uh, even some of the firewall stuff that we have to the cloud instead of look for a vendor that matches the cloud, that is cloud ready, understands distributed firewalls, understands multi-cloud, right? So it's really important because it's difficult to manage your stuff using old ways of thinking. Back to the innovation. How can we do it better? How can we do it more innovative? How can we have the cloud mentality, not the administration mentality? We don't want people that know how to administer particular tools. We want them to understand the overall strategy of what we're trying to do with the cloud. That's it. It's like the old adage, old habits die hard, right? They do. got to be totally willing to embrace change up and down, left and right, and let those old habits die. Almost like breaking an addiction, like me giving up my morning coffee or something. That would be terrible. No, don't say. No way. Yeah. No <laughs> one. <laughs> All right. Let's talk a little bit about Gen AI. And here's my hypothesis. And then you can weigh in on this because you're the exact right person to, to speak to this. And you'll see why in a minute. It's my opinion that Gen AI is another big paradigm shift that's come our way. How big, we'll see, but it is going to change, like cloud, the way that we approach our work, the way that our job roles function. It's going to reshuffle the deck in terms of skill sets. That's what I mean by paradigm shift. It's, it's more than just a superficial change. It's going to matriculate you know, down into to the workforce. 
But while it's just now getting started, I don't feel like enterprise has yet really begun to get serious about it. It's too new. And we see these Gen I powered application platforms coming out that will help you do everything from, you know, pick meals to find the best recipes. It's consumer driven right now is what my point is. And it's focused on consumer benefit and consumer technology as opposed to business outcomes. Now, maybe you could say that the way, say, Microsoft is using it for their productivity suite is a little different. But in terms of like leveraging these cloud services and their Gen AI services, I don't think the real work has begun yet. I think what's happening is that we have a lot of born in the cloud greenfield stuff that's super agile coming out. But let's say, let's take a critical system that you have for your hotel guests or your franchise operations. You could fill one in for me, maybe a booking system or, you know, a reservation system. Check in, check out, concierge, right. booking, shopping. Right. Now that could clearly be enhanced, optimized, revolutionized by Gen AI, right? Yes. You could do a lot of the front end of what the kind of reservation needs to be and the details of the booking and even some of the financial transactions through a Gen AI assistant that feels pretty human and friendly without having to say, pick up the phone and, and call someone or even just give the typical hotels.com kind of point click experience, right? Gen AI could totally resurface that. But I'm thinking that that kind of application is going to take the culture that you have discussed of innovation and risk and relearning and vulnerability and all these things we discussed to, to build correctly, because it's not like you can greenfield that stuff. That's my point is that it's going to be hybrid mostly and that the companies that are able to refactor and are able to pivot are going to be able to bring these services out with minimal cost higher uptime and reliability and, and scalability. But I feel like it's an opportunity for a customer's enterprise to wound itself all over again because they're going to try yeah. to just slap Gen AI on the top of something. But you have to think about all of the security and governance and compliance and stuff that's involved for a deep enterprise platform like this, right? This is privacy customer data. It's their credit card stuff. It's their home address. It's their zip codes. It's the names of their children and family members. And Building a cloud system to protect the data privacy and the regulatory structure around that is, in my experience, more complicated than just slapping a Gen AI front end or back end on something. Yeah. So I would agree with your, your first statement that it is a paradigm shift. Yeah. For sure. I laugh when I hear people in the industry, some people in the industry, comparing it to cryptocurrency. Like it's, uh, it's going to come and go. It's, it's, it's just a fad. When because they don't quite understand how it is being a paradigm shift. So it, it is affecting both, as you said, the internal associate, the people, the workers that are the information workers, the code developers, in addition to customers. McKinsey says that it most affects sales and marketing, software development, and in terms of legal, for illegal things, and then operations. So when you do customer operations. So in Whenever you have interactions with the customer, it can really enhance the experience, but you can't have generative AI and AI in general without some kind of transparency and privacy. And if you're generating things, some kind of copyright as well. Mm. For the last year, we've been looking at privacy, copyright. How do we do this such that our data doesn't end up, our customer's data doesn't end up in the wrong hands? So that's what we've been focused on this year. We'd, and we've had some uh, POCs re regarding that. 
But for next year, we're looking at empowering the associates first. So they have it straight in their mind what it means to have generative AI. A lot of people are still confused about what generative AI is compared to AI. Mm -hmm. So we want them to really touch and feel that. And you're right. Like the, so Microsoft is definitely ahead on this. So the Copilots, which just became generally available on November 1st, that's where we're going to focus first. We're going to focus with 300 information workers from marketing, legal, uh, so all through the business units and in development for people that are creating, you know, Word documents, PowerPoints, uh, Excel, automatically analyzing Excels, doing meeting summarizations and teams, doing email summarizations, which I know a lot of people are interested in. You have a thousand emails unread. What are the most important ones? Which ones do I have to deal with first? Which ones do I have to have action items, right? Just summarizing all of the, the things there. And then we're looking at researching other products like for our strategic principles, one of them is platform first. And so we have platforms like Atlassian. So Atlassian has something called Atlassian intelligence. How's that gonna benefit our Jira or Confluence or Salesforce? How is Salesforce Einstein GPT going to, what's the use case there? How is it gonna make it easier for us in our franchisee experience of them logging in and getting access to information about policies and procedures and how they interact with choice. CrowdStrike, Charlotte, AI, there's all these different things and then Amazon is a big partner. So Bedrock, foundational models. How do we use some of the foundational models, add our data to it? We're really lucky because we have a, a really, uh, a cloud first data analytics platform we call DAP that really lends itself to having generative AI in front of that. Like you said, you don't want to just slap something on. So we're working with the privacy group with also in choice to make sure that, you know, as we're dealing with customers, that uh, we're not exposing their information. They're clear with what we're doing with their, we're transparent from our AI policies as well. So it's, it's, it's exciting times. I, we see a huge benefit ultimately in EBITDA. So from a finance standpoint, our drivers are properties being opened up like net unit growth or our drivers are, you know, our franchisees are getting more value as I started the conversation as we're providing those technologies for our franchisees. So we see a lot of benefit of generative AI across that, but we need some time to actually flush these things out. So we, we see a three year sort of path to being clear on all of the benefits of generative AI. I just want to be the, the person like you heard it from Woody first. Here it is on the podcast documented. I think successful innovative companies such as Choice Hotels, and of course, I can totally shoot this down again. We're just having fun on the podcast. Yeah. Are in a perfect position to become the leader in the JI, uh, sorry, Gen AI vacation creation experience, resort creation experience. And what I mean here is that what Gen AI is really good at, amongst other things, is doing a ton of research in the background, right? Synthesizing and coming up with very personal, intelligent action plans and recommendations. Great for sales and marketing in this way, yes, right? Yes. You know, hey, I want yeah. you to read these six blogs and distill out the most three important points. And then I want you to put post something on LinkedIn for me. That's mm -hmm. a synopsis of this. And Jenny, I choose that up. Chat GPT or GPT backend loves that. Um, but why not have an engine where you could just go to Gen AI and say, I think I might want to do a vacation in Europe next summer. What's that going to look like? And the Gen AI could shoot you all these fascinating data points and say, well, here are the best locations. 
Here are when the crowds are going to be their lowest. Here's all the cool coupons for all the cool family activities in these areas. Here are some of the best plane tickets. Here are some of the most car rentals. Do you want me to put together a package for you and you can you can check it out? Imagine that. Oh, absolutely. For recommendations, understanding your preferences. So I noticed that you, you know, you like to go to beaches or you like yeah. to be in the mountains or it's normally around spring break that you take when your kids are off or so all the data points and being able to say, well, you use these, you use choice privileges points. So let's, how do we yeah. take advantage of those at the right time? And then you also have American Airlines points and how it's do we it. use like that whole it's a yes. crazy thing. Every time you try to be the travel agent for your family, Gen AI can really help that experience. Yes, it can. It's perfectly suited for that. So you guys go get them, man. Bring that innovation. I want to hear the <laughs> press next year that the Choice Hotels has like the most exclusive, incredible resort booking engine or whatever. I'm going to screw it up because I'm not in the hospitality business, but. Um, no, that makes sense. That sounds yeah, great. Yes, yeah. absolutely. All right. Well, Sean, I will let you go. You've endured my uh, my questioning and my frivolity for, for far too long. So thank you. This was a true pleasure and I learned a ton. Oh, that's awesome, Woody. It's great to spend time with you this morning. Lovely Friday morning. So uh, yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Stay in touch. Hopefully we'll see you reInvent, right? Yes, I will be at reInvent. I will okay. be there. So I will All be right. seeing you. Take care.